This episode of the Yes Girl podcast is sponsored by 20th Century Fox's new film, The Hate You Give. Based on the New York Times bestseller by Angie Thomas, the big screen feature stars Amanda Stenberg. When 16-year-old Star Carter witnesses the police shooting of her unarmed friend, she must find her voice and stand up for what's right. Don't miss the film critics are calling the most important story in years. The Hate You Give and select theaters now and theaters everywhere October 19th. Actually, I've seen the film, and let me tell you, it is beautiful. It is so on point, Charlie, because it's literally ripped from the headlines of what's been happening surrounding Black Lives Matter. Angie Thomas did a phenomenal job. I read the book. It's so moving, so timely, so rich, so compelling. And this cast that really brought it out, I mean, Amanda did a great job, Regina Hall did a great job, and who really, really, really touched me was the Russell Hornsby who plays Maverick, the father. The father, yeah. It's really beautiful how she took something like Black Lives Matter and turned it into art, but then with a message. I can already tell from the trailers that this is a movie we have to see. Yes. And that they brought all of the emotion that we all feel every day out through the story that we know so well. And I'm ready. Ready. The hate you give in theaters. I think everyone's going to see this movie. They are, and they should. Hey, Charlie Penn. Hey, Corey Murray. What's good? I'm welcoming myself and you to another week of... Yes, yes girl. girl. Still missing Yolanda, but she's almost back. She's almost back. Who's on the show this week, Corey? DeRay McKesson. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. He is. And he has a wonderful book out called On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. And I was able to sit with him because you were away in South Africa. You guys, we're still getting through all the time. Corey and I were separated. But wait for it because, we you know, it's a good one. It's a good one. Everyone's talking about the hate you give. The hate you give. The hate you give. The hate you give is a new classic for a new generation. It's about family and community. Shine your light. I ain't named you star by accident. The hate you give. Ready PG thirteen. Now playing only in theaters. Charlie, we're back. Yes, and I'm still floating on a high from this weekend, Corey. Where, where were you this weekend, Charlie? At the inaugural Essence Black Love Gala. Can it I say down. it should have been the inaugural Charlie Penn's idea, Black Love Gala? Okay, I, I love to give credit what credit is due. I love you for that, Corey. And it was really wonderful that a lot of people hit me up on social after and they were like, what a fun idea. Thank you so much. So many couples were like, we needed this. And you know what, Corey? I'm going to tell you why because I don't know if you know this. There are very few occasions where we can get extremely fancy and cute and go out that aren't extremely pricey. Oh, aside from, yeah, because I'm thinking of like a New New Year's Eve. Yeah. So New Year's Eve, you're paying a ton. You got to get bottle yes. service. You got to get a table. You got to do other things. And then and other you, people's weddings. Exactly. A wedding. And that's also not about your love, right? That's about someone else's. True. Stay in your lane. You got to sit through their ceremony. You got to listen to the toes, bring a gift, all of those things, which is wonderful, but it's not about you. You can't be like the extra couple in the corner all night. You have to pay attention. You do. And then if you go to like a charity gala, which are really a gala, gala, you, which one is it, y'all? Which one is it? Which one do y'all say? I say gala, but I catch myself saying gala occasionally, but it's gala. But I think if you're in the South, it's gala. I think I'd say gala. 
Which one do you say? Let us yeah, know. Let us know. But anyway, the other when you go to one of those, Corey, those are t- tickets are like thousands oh, of dollars. Please, you, it's like um, you can do a table for ten, right? Ten k. Here you go. Or if you want a single purchase ticket, it's like five hundred. And we will be looking for that donation when you get there. Yes. And then they put On the top donation. Of the ticket, okay? Which is always for a good cause. I know. I know. But still, so when you think of it that way, this was, I wanted this to be something we could really enjoy, but that didn't have to be like that. And it was a success. It was lit. DJ MOS, DJ Kiss Corey. It was a moment. You guys, check out hashtag Black Love Gala. Tell me about the hosts. Who were those hosts with you? Oh, Kadeen and Deval Ellis, our official hosts with Toyota Avalon, Kadeen and Deval. They're our favorite Instagram couple crush. They're the Ellis's. They're bays. I love their love. We all love their love. They have amazing three little boys. They just are the cutest family on Instagram. And they were my co-hosts for the evening. They really just had all the fun. I was just there to welcome everybody. But it was a moment. And people were excited to see them because for a lot of people on their feed, they're real life black love goals. Really? And little tea about Deval. Okay. And his name is Deval, y'all. Not Deval. I got checked. Deval. He is Omari Hardwick's stunt double. Go stunt double on power. Look at him having a job. Okay. They have the same physique. So when you see Bay, our ghost, Armari doing dangerous things, it's the Val. Wow. Who knew? Who knew? That's kind of cute. He's a former NFL player. Kadena is a fabulous makeup artist. And they are just so cute and real. And you've also recognized them on Black Love Doc. Really? That's why you know their faces. That's why we know them. Absolutely. I wish I could have been there, but... I was at home just... What were you doing this weekend, Corey, with Jillian? Because I saw Jillian got a new hairdo. Jillian got a new hairdo. Shout out to the Ursula Stevens Salon. Which who is everything. her up. Just please, just... If Jillian asked me one more time about these braids. <laughs> but I was actually in my feelings Why? because... You ever just feel stressed about just living while black? Corey? This... I mean... This weekend, ooh. Cornerstone Caroline? Yes. I mean, Cornerstone corner store caroline yeah she i can't even and then she comes back and apologizes after the footage comes out you know so, what i love though? Have you, are you guys familiar with what happened this woman called the cops on a nine-year-old boy in a store for after he brushed past her with his bag with his mom mm-hmm. and claimed that he grabbed she touched her butt him. i mean yeah he touched and sexually her. assaulted her and this kid is crying with his mom and his sister she, he's scared and she's up here fake calling the cops we learned she didn't actually call She's on the phone with someone reporting him for sexual assault while all these, making a whole scene. And she really said he grabbed her butt until the footage came out this weekend. And it was like, that's not what happened. Girl, he clearly walked by her. It is so dangerous to just be black around a racist person. Can I tell you, Period. I have this pulled up. I love, I always mention Ava DuVernay because I just stand for Ava. So Ava tweeted um, the New York Metro tweet that said a white woman who called police after claiming a young black boy touched her behind in a Brooklyn deli drew ridicule and criticism on social media she later apologized so Ava rewrote this tweet Mm. and she says this is what it should have fixed it a white woman named Teresa Klein who lied to the police and traumatized a young black child with her historical fiction reminds many on social media of the accusations in our recent past that have lost black boys their freedom and even their lives yeah, that's how it should have been written. And I'm waiting for the day. This happens now every week, and I'm trying to figure out when the headlines are going to be accurate. We, because this is not a, this is not they're not just social media bashing. No, it isn't. And just in our September issue, going back with Naomi Campbell on the cover, we had Feminista Jones. If you're not already following Feminista, please do. But I know She's most so of you guys are. She's so dope. But she wrote an op-ed for us called "Breathing While Black," and she really just talks about the racial bias that we have just been. Dealing with with white people going back daily, going back years, going back centuries even. 
and just she just there's a whole paragraph and I'm looking at it it's like 20 lines of just incidences of where black people have just been criticized and attacked just for being like in a grocery store on mowing the beach. a lawn on the beach grilling uh, a black state a black state representative campaigning in her district i mean when she initially sent in this piece i was like these can't all be things that are true and they were walking your dog Come you know, on. In a white neighborhood. But I have to say, Corey, too, what's interesting is when you really think about it, it's not what we how we deal in the world with white people, it's how we deal with races. Yes. Because in most of these incidents, a lot of times there was a white person behind the camera mm-hmm. filming what was happening mm-hmm. while, you know, what was or also just right along with us. Like yeah. what are you doing? Remember Starbucks? Yeah. Yeah, that Those was. Those two minutes, Starbucks, yes. that woman was outraged. And I'm not saying, you know, I just really, you know, it's when we really think about how nuanced it is. I know that, you know, sometimes Trump followers and supporters want us to think that it's black versus white. No. But it's hate versus love. Yes. And when you're black living your life, you could encounter hate at any moment, at any corner. And, you know, this is perfect how we're going to get into why we are talking with activist Doray McKesson because he wrote a book called On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he's been out there in the front line for us, really advocating for Black Lives Matter. But he realized in all the challenges of being a stand-up person or being an activist of us, he still has to find hope, even when he's being tear gas, even when he's been uh, being arrested, even when people are sending him death threats, that he still has to find a hope in these challenges. So I love that what he's going to talk about, that he is really giving us a blueprint for how we can as much as it's harmful to hear about things like Corner Store, what is her name? Corner Store, Corner Store Caroline. Corner Store Caroline and all these other people that we can still find a little bit of hope in the everyday attacks that we have. And I think it's important not to be afraid. Like my husband and I, go ahead, Corey, that was a word, first of all. But I think my husband and I go back and forth. Mm -hmm. Like, are we afraid to be black right now? You know, we should be. I think a lot of people are, but I think we do choose hope and we choose to be fearless because we don't want that enemy to win. So we don't think about what we may encounter. But in certain moments, though, I can tell that we change our behavior. Like my husband has this whole thing about how he's going to hold his hands and like he's extra polite in stores. Not that he's afraid, but it's just like, let me just get in and get out and and hope we don't end up in the wrong neighborhood with the wrong person confused as to how someone black could have what they have or be where they are. And even though the movie's plot is slightly different, being black in America is still a struggle right now. Being black in America is a struggle right now and it has been a struggle, but I do have hope that we will get to a point. I don't know when. I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime, but we'll get to a point when we can be seen as equals. And it's and I love that you got to talk to DeRay because Every time I I bump into him, you know, out and about, he is still living his life. And he's doing critical work, important work, serious work in that vest. So you can't miss him and be clear. But he's also still, there's a person there. DeRay is there. And he's funny and open and kind and all of these things. And he's found a way to manage the load. Like it's a heavy lift, but he's still making sure that he's a lighthearted and happy person and hopeful. Yeah, so in his interview, it was really, he came in just joyful. He was like, I mean, I don't know, I hope he doesn't hate me saying this, but he came in here because he saw we, we videotaped the episode too uh-huh. and he didn't have a haircut. Oh, he was And he mad. was like, y'all got me on here with no haircut? Y'all got me? <laughs> so I was, 
I wasn't expecting that. I thought he was going to come in like, hello, I'm DeRay McKesson. No, he's is, like, what's up with this camera, know, He right? was like, what's up with this camera? I hope. And he was, you know, it was kind of cute. He's a fun guy. He is a fun guy. And, you know, guy. I think it's important to hear from him about doing the work, but also because we don't need to be too angry every day because that's not good for us. No. But we need to stay woke and stay mad because this is a real thing we're going through every day. Our, our kids, everyone. So let's get into this interview with DeRay. Yes. Up next. DeRay McKesson, welcome. It's, it's good to be here. Good to be here. You are here in town because you wrote a little something. I wrote a little something. It almost killed me. So I'm proud that it exists. And I, it's one of those things when like you, it's yours now, right? The, yes. Like the stories aren't just things that I have. Yes. They're like things that we have to share. So that's interesting. So you wrote a book of essays called On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. Yes. How long has this book been with you? It is, you know, in some ways, I feel like the book has been with me for a long time. That There's some of the essays like about the protests, about the police that I have been writing in my head for a while. There are other essays about my mother, about being gay, that were just harder to write. That like, you know, my mother left when I was three, came back when I was 30. That's been real to me forever. Uh, but I just have never written about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was different. And I've been gay for as long as I can remember. But I just had never written about it. So that was like a hard thing. And, you know, I listened to this sermon uh, not too long ago before the book started. And the sermon was titled, Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon. And I remember being like, what that mean? What does that mean? And what he said was, sometimes you can tell your story so soon, all you see is the pain, not the purpose. Mm, and I was like... That's a word. Yeah, it was like a thing to me. And it was like, if I had written a book two years ago, it would have been about the play-by-play of the protests, right? I wasn't able to think about like the themes and the lessons. And, the, and I finally was at a point where I could think about the themes and lessons. And that is the book. You know, it was interesting um, in reading some of your work here. It made me think of the time we had um, Netta on our cover. And when we were working on our cover with Netta, who was your one of your many partners. Mm-hmm. In I just Black talked Lives, to Netta yesterday. In Black Lives Matter. And she was very clear to us and said she wanted to paint a full picture of who she was. Like, yes, she protested. Yes, she would give her life. But she also loved being Mary Jane. She needed to wrap her hair certain ways. Like, she wanted to be clear. Was that true? Can you relate to that in that you really wanted people to see your full self? Yeah, you know, I think about, you know, I was just somewhere the other day and somebody asked me why I wrote about my mother, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, there is no way for me to think about how I show up in the world that isn't impacted by her absence. Like, I get it. You know, and I've been going through some, it's been a hard couple of days. And the other day I woke up and, you know, I just wanted a mother, right? I just wanted like a hug and a, I wanted to, I wanted to know there was a place that love lived. And like, I don't have that. Like, that's just not, she's not in my life in that way. Uh, and I know that because of her absence, I have had to work through a lot of my own issues about what it means to be worthy, mm-hmm. right? That like, if she could leave, then anybody could leave, yeah. right? That like, so how do I expect you to love me if... If Joan could yeah. go. And like that shows up in the way I show up in every room. And like that's honest, right? And like me being gay, it's like I'm gay in all the rooms. I'm not just gay in, I don't know, some rooms. I'm gay in all the rooms. And to not bring that to the book would just to be telling half of a story. And I didn't want to tell half of a story. Has she seen your her essay? Joan, you know, it's interesting. I just thought my sister's name is Teray. We're not twins. We just black from Baltimore. Okay. And um I talked to Teray yesterday, last night actually, and she said Joan texted her Joan's my mother and says she got the book so I don't know I haven't I haven't talked to Joan about the essay (laughs) um but yeah 
How does your father feel about um, his part in the book? I was I got into the part where you called him, which I thought was a very beautiful moment when you opened up to him about the abuse, and he was like, "We're going to handle this," and he did. He, yeah, he I think feels good about it. We actually in writing the book, he and I had to talk about me writing about this because you know my father's like really emotional and adorable. You're like daddy, okay, and um, I had to call him because what was true to me is that. Uh, that was a moment that I realized that he couldn't protect me. Mm. You know, like that was like the moment, it was like Joan left and that he couldn't protect me. So like, I remember being a kid and going through that. And like, he and I only recently talked through that when I was writing. So that was a lot. It was like heavy for him too, because you know, it's like, it wasn't his fault. You know, it was this moment though, where I was like, I felt alone in some places. Right. It was like, he couldn't protect me. Joan left. I think my great-grandmother's going to die because she's so old. You know, it was just like all this stuff happening, and I was so young. Wow. And you also talk about a lot of people don't give credit to the youth and that you you can figure out a way to navigate through hardship and hard things. So I'm curious to know, was reading a way for you to navigate through things? And I bring it only up because each chapter begins with a very profound quote. So what kind of impact? How did you, I guess, shore yourself up? during these times. Yeah, I think often when we think about young people, and I think about this as a teacher, somebody who opened up an after school center, who worked at after school centers and worked in districts, is like um, kids might not have the language, but they have the experience, mm-hmm. right? And because because they don't have the language doesn't mean that we should discount the fact that they live in a world. So I, I just did a talk, uh, or I just did a conversation with sixth graders about police violence around a, a text that we read. Um, and they there was the white character was just treated differently in the book. They didn't have the language around race. They knew what was happening, though, right? So we had to, I had to have a different entrance to talk about, like, why did the white girl get treated differently? But once they sort of, like, felt comfortable with the language, they got it, right? But they already knew. And that's so much of how I feel with young people is that, like, they know what racism is. They might not use the word racism, but they know what it's like to be followed in a store, to see their mom followed in a store. They might not know what a food desert is. And I didn't know the language of food deserts when I was a kid. I just thought that nanny, my great-grandmother, just liked going to the grocery store that was 20 minutes away, right? I didn't realize we just I've actually did. never heard the term food desert. Right. What you is haven't? that? No, what is oh, that? It's like the people that you live in a food that de- you live in a place where there's you can't buy food. Like there's oh, no food near you. Okay. It's like you should be able to like walk to a grocery store, or like go very quickly to one. But in our communities, like you, like we had to drive 20 minutes to the, the closest grocery store. In our neighborhood, we could buy like chips. We couldn't buy lettuce, right? And that's what a food desert is. And so I didn't have that language as a kid, but I knew that there was no grocery store close to us, right? Like we had to travel far to get a, to get groceries. And like, if you don't have a car, when are you, mm-hmm. when are you getting fresh meat, right? Like, mm-hmm. so those sort of things. So I trusting young people. So in the book, um, I think a lot about how, like it was in the, the author's note, and you have a galley copy, so this is in the author's note is at the end. Uh, in the final version, the author's note and this is the beginning. But this idea that language is actually the first act. So like language is what helped me live in a bigger world. That's why that chapter about religion is called I Was Raised by Magic, because storm opened my eyes, right? Mm-hmm. It was SimCity that helped me think about what it meant to build community. Like those things like changed my life. Talk about that a little bit more, because when I saw I, I was I saw the chapter title, I was like, Ooh, what is he talking about? Black girl, black folks don't like magic. So talk about that a bit. Yeah, I was thinking about like, where do, where do we learn ethics? Right. Like, where do we learn our sense of morality of right and wrong? Like, where does that come from? And for me, it was Storm. Like when I think about uh, the first person I ever saw lead a team, it was Storm. You know, yeah. it was like there was a crisis. Storm showed up first, got the rain going on. Da da da. 
and she did enough to create space for other people to do great work. So she would do a little something, Cyclops would come, Wolverine would come. Like, that was sort of how it, every episode, like, that's how it worked. And I learned a lot about what did it mean to have power and restraint? What did it mean to create space for other people? What did it mean to know and trust that other people had your back? Like, I learned those things from Storm, you know? Like, I didn't learn them from church. I didn't learn them in school. I learned them from Storm. I even think about, like, I write about Sonic the Hedgehog. You know, you think about Sonic, or no, not Sonic, uh, Mario Kart, is that in Mario Kart, the closer you get to being number one, the less power-ups you get. Like, okay. the the mm-hmm. like the little things you get are awful when you get to number one because you just don't need that help, right? When mm-hmm. you're, like, last, you're getting, like, the coolest little shells to shoot and all the zapper and, like, all that. But when you're number one, you don't need it. And it was a great example of, like, how do we support people in need? Like, those are the things that taught me that. You know, SimCity was the thing that taught me what it meant to build, you know? Because, like, I don't... Do you remember SimCity? Did you play uh, SimCity? I didn't play. Do you know SimCity? I know what it is, but What'd I didn't play. Do? I'm a little older than you. Oh, come on. You know the Sims, though. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Do you really the little know the... block people, and they build little things. <sighs> block people? Like Tetris? What? <laughs> All right. Okay. I don't know what it is. Okay. So, the Sims and SimCity. <laughs> SimCity's a little older, but SimCity, you, like, build a city. And the Sims, it's like you have a family and like you make sure they eat and all this other stuff. You're but you're like, are they like Tetris? I'm like, what is she talking I mean, about? but it's building. You said building. Ooh, it's, okay, I mean, go ahead, yes. go ahead, go ahead. But the the thing about them is that like, so they're fun games. They're much easier to do when you cheat, when you have the cheat codes. You're like, I can do this. It just is like actually hard to do in reality. And like it was building a city on SimCity. I was like, oh, this is what it means to like put together something really complicated without a cheat code. And anyway, so that chapter is about like, where do we learn lessons? everyone is talking about it's time to speak up starring amanda stenberg regina hall russell hornsby Issa ray aldi smith with common and anthony mackie shine your light i ain't name you star by accident the hate you give with pg-13 now playing up next more yes girl with deray mckesson what i love about your book is that it's personal stories, but then also you give some takeaways for people, how to kind of stand up in their community. What were some big takeaways that you really wanted to get across? Yes, I think a lot about, um, there's a lot of things I learned. So chapter three is about the police and there's a lot of information there about the police that you probably don't know. So you think about in uh, California, there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. That just like doesn't make sense, right? And I love the thing you talk about the law they started in Ferguson. If you're standing more than what four seconds, still five seconds. Five so seconds. In St. Louis, it was um, in St. Louis, there was a rule that was called the five second rule that if we sit still for more than five seconds, we were arrested. So if you ever saw us marching, it wasn't that we thought marching was cool. It was it was illegal to stand still, which is like a wild. That is wild. But you had a, your tweets about it got it re- returned. I mean. Overturn, yeah. Overturn. My tweet, my my tweet was the first public uh, reference to the five second rule, and I was a plaintiff in the court case that got it overturned and deemed unconstitutional. So, so some of the work of like what we can do is like realize that there are these things operating on a level that people don't see, but that matter. So, in Cleveland, for instance, uh, police officer disciplinary records are destroyed every two years. That just like doesn't make sense, right? And, no, it doesn't. In Maryland, the law says that you can file an anonymous complaint against an officer for everything except brutality. 
you're like, that also just doesn't make sense, right? So some of it is like operate, understanding that things are operating on another level. The second, I'm fascinated with the way that we use language in this work. Mm-hmm. So you think about the difference between equality and equity, right? That equality is everybody gets the same thing. Equity is that people get what they need and deserve. The work of justice is almost always a work of equity. So we're not asking for equal funding for school systems. We're always asking for equitable funding. We know it just costs more to educate kids in poverty and kids with special needs. You think about like diversity and inclusion, right? That diversity is about bodies, inclusion is about culture. So I can recruit 20 more black people and it can still be a racist business, right? I can hire 20 more trans siblings and it can still be transphobic. And you even think about the language around justice and accountability, right? That like accountability is what happens after the trauma. Mm -hmm. Justice is the fact that you should never have to experience a trauma in the first place, right? So I'm interested in the way that we use language to craft narrative and to like invite people in the space. And the third is this idea that um, if you can't imagine it, you can't fight for it. And that like, when I say the system's broken and some people say, oh no, it's working exactly like it was designed. My takeaway from that is that it was designed, right? Mm. Somebody made this up. And because somebody made it up, we can make something different. If they can rewrite the tax code on the back of paper towels and napkins, then we can actually do this in a generation too. This doesn't have to be a 200 year solution. What was like the first thing? I know you, you felt this need, you, you drove nine hours to go to Ferguson when it happened. What was, was there another point in your life where you stood up and fought for something? in a public way? Yeah, so as a young, as a teenager, I was a youth organizer in the city, so I did a lot of work around youth adult partnerships. Uh, I was on nonprofit boards and stuff like that when I was really young. And I was in student government until, you know, senior year in college. I think that teaching was the first time that I felt like I, like, took a stand and was like, I don't want to just do policy. I don't want to do trainings. I want to, like, come in this every single day and, like, figure out how to make it better. And that, to me, was, like, the most incredible thing I've ever done. And, you know, I'll never forget the first day of school when the door closed and I'm like, I'm math, you know? Like, they're looking at me like I know everything about anything that's ever happened in math and, like, the responsibility uh, was so great and it made it like humbled me and I you know we had a book event in New York um, uh, two weeks ago and I got to invite one of my students and it was like you know I taught a decade ago and I got to invite he's old now and I'm like you're so old and, and like that is just the most fulfilling thing so so teaching uh, changed my life wow something you wrote and you say protest at its core is telling the truth in public and I really really love that where'd you how can you tell me about this idea of telling the truth in public and what fuels you to continue telling the truth in public? I'm always interested in how do we like, like what's the what, right? And people would always ask me like, what is protest? And it's like, that's what I think it is. We stood in the street to like tell people that Mike Brown should be alive today. Like that was it, right? Like he should be alive. I don't, we might debate about whether his hands were up or not. We might debate about some other stuff. But all I know is that in the end of the day, he should be alive. Like that's just basic, right? And so much of it is like you see people standing in the street, running for office. Like all this is us saying like, we're not going to let you ignore that these things are issues. And like that's why I think about the day of telling the truth in public, that we use our bodies to tell the truth in the street. You're using a platform like this to tell the truth. You know, people run for office to tell the truth in those places. That part of our commitment to this work is not only to be truth tellers, but to create space so everybody else can create truth or tell truth. Now, this book has already been out. It's getting good reviews. What is it like now that the book is out? How are you navigating through the world? Are you happier that this is out? I'm definitely happy that I'm not writing anymore. (laughs) It is, you know, it's funny. um, 
because there's a gap between when you finish the book and when the world sees it. So people have sent me notes and I'm like, oh my God, I love that sentence. And I'm like, well, I wrote that. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I should write that down. I'm like, I did write it down, you know? So that's actually been fun. I'm like, oh, I really do like that. And and some of this are things that I've been saying for so long mm-hmm. that uh, hearing people have it now and not just like as a soundbite for me, but like they, it's theirs. Um, that's interesting. It is, you know, with the personal things, it's like people know all this stuff all of a sudden, right? And they like can ask and da 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 in a way that before only my friends really knew some mm-hmm. of this stuff, you know? So that's different. I wanted to personally thank you. Uh, I was watching your interview on Dita Samero. Oh. And to quote DeRay, DeRay. DeRay. I got more tired by the I get more tired by the injustices of the world than traveling for Essence Fest. We want to put that on t-shirts. <laughs> and you co-sign. Did us they doing ask me it. about Essence Fest? Is that they did. Because okay. I guess the question was, are you tired? You know, we just saw you at Essence Fest. Oh. And he was you were like, that doesn't make me tired. Right. Like, yes, right. Yes, yeah. yes. Being around black people is energizing. And Essence Fest is, you know, there is this thing about um, remembering that blackness is not only pain, right? Mm. That, like, we are also a joyful people. And Mm. Essence Fest is this reminder that black is more than pain, right? That black is also joy. And that some of what has allowed us to both overcome and sustain ourselves is, like, a commitment to each other. And, like, a, a realization that, like we decide what's cool, right? And we decide what's fun. And like, that is like part of our magic, you know? What would you say you tapped into as far as to keep your joy doing this big, wonderful, and we're so thankful that you stood up for us, but what tap, what did you tap into to find your joy over these years? I think I'm always mindful that I'm one of many people, right? So like I had a role to play. Part of my role was to tell the truth and use all the platforms to do it in tight ways. Um, But I lean on so many people to like just be around and they're fun and great. The second is that like it's deeply rooted in hope. Like people made this up, right? And because people made it up, we can make something different. So I never, ever believe that this is set in stone, that like I'm convinced we can do something better than this. So that keeps me hopeful. I love a young adult Mm-hmm. Like uh, novels and things like that. So I just read The Children of Blood and Bone, which is great. I love that book. It's great. So there's a lot of, so try to read as much young adult as I can. And part of that was like, I taught sixth grade. So like, I just, you know, yeah. that age group I get. Um, so that is it. And then I'm always looking for like a new adventure, you know, like mm-hmm. a part of my own podcast, I have a podcast, Posse of the People, is like, I'm always interested in like, like, what are the things I don't know? So I'll ask you, do you know why people, this, I'm obsessed with this. Right. This is, we haven't even aired this on my own podcast, but I'm talking about it with everybody else. Cause I'm just, do you know why kids eat paint chips? Like lead paint? Like why were kids eating paint chips? Why do kids mm-hmm. still eat paint chips? I was, my first thought was like, is it salty? It's sweet. It tastes like oh. candy. Because I'm sitting up here like, why do kids eat paint chips? So there's no cure for lead. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a point in our history where the housing projects were mandated to use lead paint. And if you think about like what it means that when the paint chips is sweet and kids eat it and like they uh, like lead lead paint poisoning seems really obvious all of a sudden you're like well of course they got paint poisoning because it tastes like candy, and I remember I had somebody on my podcast were talking about lead she says it and I'm just like I didn't know wow I didn't know you know you even think about I didn't know this this is somebody else I was obsessed with like dental health and dental justice oral justice is um. Do you know, did you know, I didn't know that all of your teeth aren't baby teeth, like all of kids' teeth aren't baby teeth, that when their molars come in, they're permanent? That I knew because I have an eight-year-old. I didn't know that. Did yeah. you get your kids' teeth sealed? No. So you can get your kids' teeth you Is that where I see a lot of kids with silver 
on their no those are caps because that's that's oh that's okay that is but that means that the teeth the tooth is rotted okay uh you can get the back teeth sealed they put a sealant over their teeth you should go do this because your kids are old enough for it uh so they you just it's impossible to get a cavity like it seals oh. the tooth so like food can't get down the crevices like it can't rot the teeth and it's one of those things that like people in low-income communities and rural communities don't know so people in affluent communities yeah. have been getting their teeth sealed forever but you can get your teeth you can get your kids teeth sealed up until like they're teenagers so that their permanent teeth are always protected. So their baby teeth will do whatever. And like, you should make sure your kids brush your teeth. But the sealant is one of those things that people just like don't even know about, you know? And like, so I'm all, so the things that keep me joyful now, like I'm trying, mass incarceration, the police and racial, the racial wealth gap, I spend a lot of time on, but there's some of these other things that I'm like, I didn't even know. I and didn't now I'm know like an evangelist for teeth sealing. Like, I'm like, go get your kids teeth sealing. And I'm really going to do that. Cause I hate going to the dentist. And the first thing is like, well, you got to pay this. And then we got to do this. And then it's going to, I'm like, what do I have insurance for? Get their teeth sealed. Get their teeth yeah, it's sealed. One of the, and like, okay. so you think about it came up because in rural communities, if you don't see a dentist for the next five years, yeah, or then like you just get the key, their teeth sealed and like they're sort of, they're good, right? Because like it's a impossible, yeah. like there's no food, food can't get down there. And you're like, who knew? And like you're educated, you mm-hmm. like you're in the know and you didn't know, right? Yeah. See? Interesting. I might need a new dentist. <laughs> Sorry about that, Dennis. I you know. should have told him about the teeth sealants because our kid is eight and the molars have been in since the kid was six. Thanks to our guest, DeRay McKesson. And thanks to our sponsor, 20th Century Fox and The Hate You Give. For more episodes of Yes, yes Girl. Girl, be sure to listen and subscribe to episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Everyone's talking about the hate you give. The hate you give. The hate you give. The hate you give is a new classic for a new generation. It's about family and community. Shine your light. I ain't name you star by accident. The hate you give. Ready PG thirteen. Now playing only in theaters.